everybody and welcome back to the Horror Cult Films Podcast. I'm David Smith and tonight we continue our Hellraiser retrospective with this very special episode. We're very lucky to be joined by Nicholas Vince, aka The Chatterer. Nicholas is a veteran horror actor who made his name playing the part of The Chatterer in the first two movies. He's also worked on Nightbreed and Book of Monsters, along with numerous other horror movies as an actor, writer, or director. He's also published volumes of short stories, including some in the Hellraiser universe, and he's written both Hellraiser and Nightbreed comics. And finally, he's also got his own podcast. He's a host on The Chattering Hour. So we got a heck of a lot to speak to him about. When I first emailed Nicholas, I was saying our interviews are normally about 20 minutes, and we spoke for almost 75. As such, I thought it was only right we give him his own episode, rather than being the opening act for Bloodline and Inferno. So without further ado, here's me and Alsder chatting with the Chatterer. Hello Nicholas, firstly thank you very much for coming on our show. It's my pleasure David, lovely to meet you. I often see you at events, I've seen you at Fright Fest numerous times, I've watched you introduce films like when you introduced The uh, the Perishing. I also know that you do your own horror podcast, you appear mm-hmm. in numerous horror films, numerous ho- sh- uh, short horror films as well. I've even seen you do a horror quiz show that you're one of the contestants on. <laughs> I, was, I was in the studio audience for that. Basically, you're a big horror guy. What does the mm. horror community mean to you? What does the horror community mean? It- Honestly, means fun and friendship. I mean, you mentioned um, a fright fest in particular. I really missed fright fest in the last couple of years and wasn't able to attend properly this year when we were actually back. And it's like, oh god! I mean, I did spend some time in the pub and get to meet a few people. <laughs> that was, you know, caught up with a few friends. But it's like you know, there's nothing like actually being part of it properly. But also just. We're very lucky, I think, in terms of, by we, I mean the guys who acted in Hellraiser. Our fans, and I, I, I say the word fan, and I'm immediately reminded that Clive always, Clive Barker doesn't like the the word fan, prefer, because it's short for fanatic, um, but prefers the word enthusiast. So let's say Hellraiser <laughs> enthusiast. Because they're interested, like yourself, you know, they're interested, they're interested in the work and the world that we created. Um, So what, you know, that's what I think um, enthusiasts mean to me is fun, friendship and intelligent conversations about horror and love, death, sex, you know, all all those (laughs) things that horror is basically based around. And uh, I'm right in thinking that Hellraiser is obviously like that's still the thing that people would most often associate mm. you with, right? And what do you reckon the lasting appeal of this movie is? Because this is decades after it's come out, the film's roughly the same age that I am. And at the same time, I, you know, we, we, I mean, me and Al, we both have it in our top 10 horror films of all time. Absolutely love it. And it just seems to always be on TV. It's always in rotation. You see Pinhead merchandise at all these conventions. What do you reckon is the big appeal of it? And we're going to mention the chattering hour. And I know one of my guests pointed out the fact that movies in the 1980s benefited from the um, the, the rise of the video machine. You know, the, this was these 
were the films, the first ones that actually went on to video. And so people could take them home and watch them again and again. They weren't. So there may be an element of that kind of repetition, and that helps movies of that era. But I think it's deeper than that. I think the. Because that doesn't explain why people who are much younger than yourself love it, you know, and who didn't see it when it first came out, who didn't, you know, literally would have no idea what a video cassette is um, unless it was in a history book. So I think there is something about the film that touches people very deeply. I mean, I, I mentioned sex being part of what, you know, the attraction of horror is. And it's it really is a film about a love triangle, um, mm. and but also repression and desire and, you know, all those things about that... It, you know, it really is about exploring the further re regions of experience. So I think it, at the time, it was very groundbreaking. And now it still feels, because it's not all about, oh, yes, there is. I, I kind of forget that it is actually quite explicit in many ways for its time in terms of the gore, because I really don't see it like that. I just feel that, you know, it's a love story with monsters, you know. And so I think it, it touches people very deeply, obviously. And and just the Cenobites are weird and <laughs> exciting. And as I say, you know, I know some people find them very sexy um, and very attractive. And so I think it's got all those things going for it. And it, it basically speaks about universal truths, about what it is to be a human being, to what it is to be an adult and have to fall in love and to have a passion and then be denied that passion. Um, so, yeah, universal themes, basically. I would absolutely agree with that. I was saying in the last episode that I think it's like uh, like Ibsen meets Dante in a way. I think the, <laughs> like in terms of this <laughs> very small good, I like story. that. <laughs> um, in terms of this very small story and just it's really, it really good mythos, but it's really transgressive as well for its time because we're looking at a movie where the main sort of baddies... And we, I say baddies, but everyone likes them. You know, they're the, the villains, I guess. We've got our sort of pansexual characters who are all in sort of BDSM gear. Yeah. And uh, and you sort of think, wow, like, it's, like for when that came out, it's very unusual imagery. I, and, and was, yes, for when that came out, it was very, and actually hasn't really kind of been replicated since i mean apart from within the hellraiser mythos itself but that whole as you say it really was groundbreaking at the time i remember meeting people who and becoming friends with people who were into bdsm did the skin to uh magazine and um did the the balls, I think they called them skin two balls, um, which are basically huge, great big parties for people who are into fetish wear. And that was obviously these things existed. There was a quarterly magazine called Skin Two, and it was, you know, really high quality photography production, but it was definitely kind of top shelf magazine. It wasn't pornography because it was just fetish wear. But, um, you know, it was definitely kind of in the adult section. But that's all there was. It's not the sort of thing you'd see on TV. I remember being blown away one year when they showed the first two Hellraiser films at Christmas at midnight in kind of in the slot where they used to show the God 
the ghost story films when I was growing up in the 1960s. You know, it was kind of like, oh, this is very cool. Hellraiser has attained that kind of status now, mm. and this would have been in the kind of the early 2000s when that happened. I was reading earlier today that uh, you and Clive Barker go back many years. You, I believe you modelled on the front cover of uh, Books of Blood back in the 80s. I did, yes. Indeed. That's, how, that's how Clive and I started working together. Basically, they w- had published the paperback versions of the Books of Blood, and because they had done so well, they decided to do um, hardback uh, editions, and which is kind of, I think for the time was kind of unusual. What you normally used to get was you get the high-end hardback ver- first, and then they would publish a paperback version a, a year or two later. But this was kind of done in reverse because it was so popular. You know, Stephen King obviously had, had reacted very positively to the books. So when I met Clive, he was literally um painting the covers for the for the hardbacks and he just asked me to model for him so yeah you can see me on particularly on volume four of the original <laughs> i hope everyone's <laughs> googling that right now yeah <laughs> if you go to the clive barker revelations website they've got all the, they've got all the different versions of the books of blood covers and yeah you can definitely find it there so did did you know him when he was writing Hellbound Hearts? Uh, like, because I know that that came out a year or so before he made he decided to make a film. Yes, right? I, yeah, absolutely. So I'd known Clive for about three years when we made Hellraiser, and uh, I I did know him. I don't remember him. I don't remember ever talking about it. I mean, I remember talking to him about things like Weave World and. And so on, and I think, like most of his friends at the time, I'm sure you, one had the experience, and I'm, I'm not sure this is probably true of many writers, is that when we were hanging out, you know, we were chatting and so on, and we and Clive's very intelligent, as you can tell from the books, and I'd have conversations with him, like, oh, that's mind blowing, that's really interesting, and then when you see the the book when it was published, that. Oh yeah, I remember him talking about you know that philosophically talking about a particular topic, um, and it's just like oh that was obviously at the top of his mind when we were having that conversation because he was writing that particular section of it. So I kind of recognised, I guess, some parts of the book when I read it, and I must have read it before we started filming. Um, but I think it was very clear that when. I got to meet the guys from Image Animation, the guys who did the makeup. That Chatra was very different to the way it was described in the book. You know, it, well, it's not very different, but it was there was a slightly different vision as to what the Chatra Cenobite would be like. Yeah, because in the book, the descriptions are relatively vague. Something that's come up a lot with the casting of a new Pinhead. Mm. And so when you saw the original designs for the Chatterer, like, what did you think when you first see what this character is going to look like? I, I mean, I really thought it looked amazing. I'd seen a paper, I'd seen it drawn by Nigel Booth, the guy who'd, um, who actually physically sculpted it. I do remember so my, my first sight of the Chatterer makeup was because basically the way it works is they do a life cast of you, they create a plaster bust of you, and then the makeup artist sculpts the mask on your 
in grey clay sculpts the um, what you're going to wear, the creature on that bust. I remember, I clearly remember walking into the studios of um, Image Animation and seeing the Chashra for the first time. I already knew that it was going to be a difficult makeup to wear. I'd been warned right at the very beginning it was going to be a tough gig in terms of being able to see or speak and or hear and the complete lack thereof. But <laughs> so, I, and I was blown away by it. I just thought, yeah, this looks really very, very cool. So how long were you in the chair for? Um, it was actually really quick because it wasn't stuck to my face. So unlike female Cenobite and Pinhead, the pieces weren't glued to our face. So it was a physical mask, which still exists. It's still, I think, just about um, last, hopefully lasting this long uh, in the hands of a private collector now. Um, so basically it... There was the hole for the mouth, and then there was a slit up the back. So it just kind of went on my face. So they put the teeth in my mouth first, and then they put the mask over my face. And uh, I think it was about half an hour. One of my questions, actually, is about the, the makeup effects for Chatterer, mm. which look fantastic. It, it's such a fearsome, grisly, it's a raw look. And it, it is, it's just the mouth, because you would not have been able to see out of that at all. And that's something that actually, for me personally, it adds some of the scariness of the chatter is that there's no eyes yet. He, he can, he's you, because in the film, chatter acts like he can. Like when Kirsty Cotton's mm. in front of chatter, it, it's the motions of the grabbing the back of the head and the two fingers of the mouth. And I'd imagine that would have taken some rehearsing to do, but it, it's <laughs> such a brilliant and impactful opening sequence for the Cenobites. Yeah, I, I I was really like yes, I th you know the the fact that the chatter. I mean, you'd seen Pinhead kind of through the swinging of the. Um, so you're aware of Pinhead. Pinhead let's face it, Pin Pinhead was on the poster, so everybody knew exactly what Pinhead looked like walking into the film. And I think, yeah, it is one of it's a great it's a great entrance for any character um, because you've got that whole build up before you've got the whole thing of the box opening and then the light, you know, the lamp shattering, the blood flowing upwards into the, um, yeah. uh, the, the thing you'd, you put in your arm. I can't remember the technique. The IV. The IV, thank you, the intravenous, yeah. Uh, and, um, oh, and the flower opening on the television. Yeah. And, you know, the corridor and the sound of the baby. And you've got, so literally you've got, before you see the chatterer come in, you've got at least a good three minutes of tension going, oh, shit, what's happening? What's happening? What's that? Oh, holy fuck! What, who is this guy? And I think <laughs> when, when I talked with Clive originally about the Chatterer, the idea was that he was actually kind of actually going to be a lot more agile uh, and he was kind of leaping around the set and it was more of a monkey. You know, the chattering was the chattering of a monkey's teeth was, was what was in kind of in Clive's mind but obviously once we put me in the costume and the makeup that wasn't going to happen so you get this you know like the rest of the guy he becomes this very measured controlled performance and there is as, as you say I think is a lot more powerful because he's not rushing for he's not like a Freddy quipping and 
running down the corridor. Well, he doesn't the second movie, but in the, you know the first, he's just that presence walking towards the camera, mm-hmm. and you know towards Ashley, who just played her part superbly. Yeah, you know because yeah, she did. the way that a monster is sold in a movie is by the reaction of the other characters. You know, it, if they are the people, you know, you've got the chatter and he, he's just by himself, it's an extraordinary look. But it's it's Ashley who really sells just how terrifying he is, I think. Pinhead is a, the, the main sort of star. Mm. It's very striking visual, but I think in a way, because as I'm sure you know, there's nine sequels now to that original movie. Mm. And I was actually saying to David earlier that there's something about, like, Pinhead character is obviously carried on throughout the series, but in a way, sort of spiritually, I think the Chatterer has as well, because in 4 we had the Chatterer Beast, then there was a torso Chatterer, there's been a female Chatterer, so there's a lot, most of the films have had some sort of bite to them. Yes. <laughs> I, I only discovered that a few years ago, I, I, about two or three years ago. I, I think I was looking us up on Wikipedia for some reason, I thought, and I thought, oh, I hadn't realised. I, you know, that is so cool. Um, yeah, so I, yeah, there's definitely there's the version that Gary Tunnicliffe did with, with where he's just got one mouth really twisted up uh, like, like that. There is something about it that is yeah completely iconic. I heard that yeah. Clive Barker based upon your reconstructive surgery that you had when mm-hmm. you were much younger. Like, did you know that or at the time? I didn't at the time. It was only afterwards that I said. And he pointed this out to so I think, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't wow. made that connection. It's that, it's that thing. So basically, I'd had this major reconstructive surgery when I was 19. And I had told Clive at some point before either the writing of the book or the making of the film that I had, you know, I got all excited because I'd seen this documentary on TV, which explained the process because obviously I really didn't know what it looked like whilst I was under you know anesthetic um and I got very excited about discovering that this was how it was all done and I was explaining to him and and so on so yeah I, I can honestly say that without me the chatterer wouldn't look the way he does and what I went through yeah <laughs> and so when you're putting on the the outfit you're putting on the mask right i've heard some people say that to do a sad scene you gotta make yourself sad to do a happy scene you gotta make yourself happy how did you get into character as a demonic <laughs> as, a, as a demon from hell how did you get in character that's it's a really good question because as i was saying because there was such limited movement and to be honest it becomes a very technical now doug bradley has spoken about this now obviously with Doug, because you've got voice, you can see his expression, etc. And Doug will often say that basically Clive kept on saying do less to him. And as far as Chatterer is concerned, it's like you, you, I just let the makeup do the work. It became a very technical performance it's just like nick walk hit your mark chatty your teeth put your tongue in ashley's mouth uh (laughs) you know those were the things i could do and and those were the things that were asked of me i think clive was very clear that he wanted actors rather than um stunt stunt people and that's nothing 
to do with stunt people. Uh, uh, that's no detriment to, to some stunt people who are amazing. But he was very clear he do, he, he wanted actors in the costumes and and the makeups because we do. I think because I don't remember I had a background story as such. In fact, I've written about I've written short stories too with different ideas as to how the Chatterer came to be and what he was like after the making of the film. But at the time it was, I mean, it was my first film. I, you know, I was just so excited and it was kind of like, okay, how do I make this work? How do I, what am I going to do with it? I suppose it's the best, it's the art of being present that, Whilst you are there on set, in front of the camera, doing your thing, half your mind is saying, Nick, walk forward, hit the mark. The other half of it is just bringing the concentration and the being and the history of the character. So, you know, if, if I'm out of makeup or something like that, I will, what I'll usually have done is written up my own biography if it's not given to me in the script about who this character is, what it is, what they want, what it is they're trying to do. So I will have gone through that. You know, obviously you never get to learn that in the film, but as an actor you have to go through that process just to say, OK, this is what is just so you can be present at the time on set. Really what I find especially kind of, I think, horrifying about the Chatter character is as much as what you see is what you don't see, in a sense that, visually striking if you like saw the chatter you wouldn't really want to be alone in a room with that guy in this in the sequel when there's the confrontation with the chenard character and it's the human forms of the cenobites are revealed the standout one for me is actually the chatter because you find out that this is a small it's a young boy mm. and that, that, that conceptually that's horrifying because of all the implications that go with that to be yeah. converted and turned into a Cenobite from such a young age, it, that, yeah. it is just horrifying. It's, it creates a question. You know there's a story there, if you know what I mean. Yeah, well, yes. And uh, as, I mean, uh, that is why I... I mean, you know, basically when, when it happened, uh, and I have spoken about this before, that I was just so pissed off because I thought, great, you mean, you know, when we heard that we were going to be revealed, I thought, great, <laughs> I actually, you're going to see my beautiful face. What do you mean I'm a child? <laughs> What do you mean I'm a child? Peter Atkins, screenwriter, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> and I spoke to Pete Atkins about this afterwards, and he said, he said, he said Nick, to be honest, I think I had a had a, a conversation with Clive, and just and Clive just said, I'll make one of them a child. <laughs> and he said, yeah, that's going to be Chatterer, isn't it? And it's like, oh, okay, thank you. But I, you're right, I think it's, you know... It, well, as I say, I've written a short story called Prayers of Desire about it, and and it's, it is that idea of a boy growing up in hell. I have to say, you mentioned the Chatterer Beast earlier on, which is basically a dog-like creature who's a, chat, you know, a chattering dog, led to one of my favourite uh, convention questions, which was from a nine-year-old boy, uh, funnily <laughs> enough, because uh, in America they show horror movies to m much younger than you tend to see them over here. And um, he, they, he wanted to know if the Chatterer Beast was 
Chatterer's dog in hell. Oh, <laughs> why? And I, <laughs> that is just so cool. That is just such a wonderful idea because he's a boy and yeah. a boy should have a dog. Um, and it's like, I just like, yeah, that is definitely my favorite. That's definitely I'm, my favorite. Well, there's no, there's no canon. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, I was reading a short story that was meant that I was told was by you, but now I'm doubting it, which was a version of a chatterer where the chatterer was a comedian. Yeah, no, it's by me. Oh, Let's okay. look, see. Okay. Yeah, yeah, no, you, I'm, yeah. I'll, I'll put my hand up to that one. So that one was written um, for Fear magazine for when um, Hellraiser, sorry, Hellbound, Hellraiser 2 came out. I was still smarting at that stage. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that I didn't get to be in the film. <laughs> you keep on putting me under all this makeup. What are you saying? I'm not good looking enough to be on camera. <laughs> what are you saying, guys? And that was kind of a, t- a very tongue in, t- a very tongue in. I like, I like the idea, and and, and so, um, the the more recent one is the, the prayers of a desire that came about three years. Gosh, time flies when you have a pandemic. Um, <laughs> yeah, three years ago now, because you know nothing really happened much in the last couple of years. And, so it's, uh, it's Luke, it's Luke C, the ca- the canon one then for the book, and the, and this is for the film then. Well. The, <sighs> Yeah, Luke C is definitely Nick was pissed off <laughs> and thought he and wondered if he could get away with it, so he had a go. Uh, and I was asked to write a short story, and I think for, and I, that was the best I could come up with at the time. More mature <laughs> reflection on the genius of actually having a you know, it's once I'd actually got over myself, probably took me about 10 years. Um, <laughs> it's kind of like, actually, you know what, there's a really, really interesting story here and there's, there's, um, there is something really very disturbing that I can play with as a writer. So, uh, yeah, that's how Prayers of Desire came about, which if I actually get my act together, it won't be before Christmas, but I am working on a third volume of short stories and that's going to be reprinted as part of that. I'd just like to add with Luke C, uh, the last uh, the last paragraph had me laughing out loud at work, particularly the last two lines. <laughs> I was like, that's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I hope Clive was a fan. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he has actually, bless his little cotton socks, and he probably wasn't thinking of that particularly st- particular story, but Clive is very encouraging of all. Clive's <laughs> very encouraging of everybody, you know, he, he's and he's very encouraging of my writing particularly, um, and, by which I mean particular to me and, and and our friendship so uh yeah yeah i think he must have got over <laughs> i hope he smiled when uh, he saw that <laughs> it was a cheap gag yeah <laughs> so uh horror fans love monsters it's something we said earlier it's among the most iconic monsters of the last century but when you see the chatterer on uh, things like t-shirts or those uh pop head figurines funko pops Okay, Bob. I love okay. Are you sort of able to distance yourself from the creation? Like, do you see that as that's a model of me, or is it that's a model of the character of the chatterer? It's very interesting. It's very difficult. So I think particularly, I was talking to Alice Krieger on my YouTube show the other day, and we were talking about her makeup as the Borg Queen, and she used the word collaboration between her and the makeup artists. And I think this is true. Um, as you know, we talk about the backstory of the chatter and, and you know, partly, you know, my experience definitely led into, fed into the pro- Clive's creative process. 
of the teeth and, and the, those real... You know, the rest is Pierre Clive and Jane Wild Goose, who designed the costumes, and Nigel Booth, who actually sculpted Chatterer and so on. So... I think when I look at things like, you know, the 18-inch animatronic chatterer, and that's the one that probably has the most emotional impact on me in terms of saying, okay, this this takes me back. And I've got, it's behind my green screen at the moment, that I've got the six-inch Necker toy as as well. Um, the Funko Pop just makes me smile, just makes me laugh, basically. <laughs> I just think they are... I think Funko Pops are extraordinary. There's a wonderful documentary about the history of them. I find that fascinating as well. Um, and I think they're, you know, they're amazing. So I think, yes, some of them, there is a definitely an emotional connection and reaction as far as I'm concerned. Now, when you heard we're going to be making a, uh, a sequel to Hellraiser, uh, the sequel came out a year later, so I assume mm. this was this is a quite like. Did you hear about it while the new while the first one is out of the cinema, or was it quite quickly mm. afterwards? It was really fast. It really was fast. I think the moment well, we knew that the studio, uh, which was New World uh, Productions, were very pleased with what Clive had delivered in the first house because they, well, basically they gave him more money to shoot more scenes. Uh, after we'd done principal photography, they actually then increased the budget so he could do Frank's resurrection through the floorboards, all that animatronic sequence. That was shot. So we knew that they were very pleased with it. And then the moment it came out, you know, the initial, and it, it it had, I mean, thanks to Steve Jones, who was the unit publicist, um, who worked really hard on this. You know, they, it was in Time Out magazine. Everybody knew about Hellraiser went before it came out. So it did incredible. It did well. I'm talking about over here. I don't, don't know what the process was in the states, but basically, it gained a, follow, a following, and Pinhead in particular gained a following very quickly. So, yeah, I and mean, within a year, we knew we were back. We knew we were going to be doing more of this, which was really exciting. Great as an actor. I mean, it's like, oh, you mean I get paid again for acting? This is wonderful <laughs> news. <laughs> I, so I assume you were immediately excited when you heard heard about a second one in production. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I, and apart from, you know, of that obvious reaction, it's like, it's, it, Clive is a really good friend of mine, and you're very ple- I was very pleased for Clive. We were all very pleased for Clive, because it's, you know, it shows the fact that we're not the only people who love him and love his work and think he's absolutely extraordinary, is that other people are excited by his work as well. So that's always great to hear. To comment on both uh, the first and second Hellraiser, they they do look like they were filmed back to back. The sort of visual continuity of the two films is is fantastic. But you you just don't get that that often. My questions actually would be about a deleted scene for the sequel. Um, I think you know where I'm going with this one. Which sits the I think we had the female Cenobite and Pinhead all they're in uh, hospital gowns mm, and scrubs, mm. and um, there's the chatterer comes into play during a certain elevator sequence yes. sort of reminiscent of uh, the elevator scene in, in Aliens I find yes. uh, just wonder if you would like to talk about that and what was involved there and what was the intention behind that scene with with sequels you obviously want to step up your game it was a big bigger budget I mean we made Hellraiser in Cricklewood and Dollis Hill in North London uh, in a tiny studio and then when we came to do Hellbound, we were at Pinewood Studios. 
you know, it was a very different, um, very different experience in terms of where you were and, and the scale of it and so on. The thing with Cheshire, you know, we, I think basically we've gone back to Clive's original um, idea of, of making the Chatterer more mobile, more agile. Funnily enough, it's as I mentioned earlier on, by keeping him blind and keeping him still, in a sense, he's more powerful. If he can run, and you know, he, got so, he gets eyes and he runs down, and there's a sequence where he's running down the corridor and he chases them into lift and so on. And I think it actually, funnily enough, he loses power. So all those scenes were cut. And what I particularly like now is in the version that you see is that you hear the chattering of the teeth and he's hidden behind the pillar and then he comes around the pillar and you suddenly realize he's got eyes. How the hell did he get eyes? Oh, fuck, he's got eyes. He can see me now. He could, you know, I think... Oddly enough, I think that actually works in his favour, the fact that they decided to eventually cut that that stuff. I, I don't know why it was cut. It was the, you know, that's between the director and the producer. The director was Tony Randall, um, the lovely Tony Randall. Uh, but, yeah, I, I filmed it. I did, as, I did as I was told. But I think, um, yeah, it just didn't work as well as they hoped. Mm. And yeah. for me, that's probably... From from my perspective, that's my understanding why it wouldn't have worked. Whilst okay. keeping this, of course, all very positive, there's now been ten Hellraiser films. Firstly, have you have you seen all of them? No, <laughs> <laughs> I have to say I haven't. I've seen, uh, I've definitely seen up to Bloodline. I've seen the Chatterer Torso. Um, it's great because I think that's the one with Craig Sheffer in it, who, of course, I worked with on Nightbreed. And I don't, re I definitely remember watching the first four. I've seen bits of the others. Um, I do love the fact that if I ever get to meet Henry Cavill, I can say, hey, we were both in Hellraiser <laughs> movies. Yes, um, that's very true. Yeah. <laughs> That would be right. It's like, hi, I'm Nick. I've, we've both been in Hellraiser movies. There would be a lovely conversation. <laughs> I don't mind you. I don't know what he feels about his work in that that film. But yeah, so no, I, I'm afraid I haven't. I, I can be honest, and that's partly based on a lot of fan reaction <laughs> reviews I've seen of them. I mean, you've, what you have done though is expanded the mythos with your own writing, uh, with mm. the short stories, and also with um, a comic series, I believe, mm. for Mar for Marvel. Mm. So yeah, like you you can be you can be linked to Robert Downey Jr. too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, like in, ter in terms of like sort of building up this mythos, you know, what's that process like for like for you? Uh, like, was there uh, was there ever kind of a concern about oh, would Clive be a fan of this? Would this be part of his canon, or is he just is he just it's everyone it belongs to everyone? Clive is extremely generous in terms of letting people play in. I was going to say the garden of his, of his delights, the garden of his imagination, and I don't I don't know what the contractual whether I've no idea because of course Clive had to sell the rights to Hellraiser in order to get the film made, and there he is getting them back um, soon, but quite what 
was, you know, how that came about, I don't know. But what I do know is that he was very involved in the Hellraiser stuff and he was doing other Marvel comics and Marvel was working uh, closely with Clive on other comics as well. So um, what was it like? I was basically, you know, you're given a Bible um, to work with and I knew, I mean, the way I got to write is that basically I took the money that I'd earned on Nightbreed and went across to the States and bowled into um, Marvel's offices in uh, in New York asking to see Dan Chichester, who is the um, uh, editor of the Marvel, of the Hellraiser comics, and saying, you know, I've, I've got this story, would you like to buy it? And he did. And then I had to say, that's great. I've no idea how to write a comic. How do you do it? <laughs> So Dan taught me through the uh, Marvel method of writing comics and gave me a script. Oh, of course, and, and, I never even thought about how different that would be from doing short stories. I mean, to like kind of imagine what we'd look like on the page visually. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it is fascinating, and it is literally, it is known as the Marvel method, created by Stan Lee, um, with the likes of Steve Ditko, and basically because Stan Lee was writing a lot of comics at the same time. Um, which is basically you you write a script that says, okay, page one, frame one, here's the action, here's the dialogue. Um, this is then, so the, screen, the script writer then gives it to the artist, the artist then puts together the action and the pages, and which may not be exactly what was described on the page, so then the writer goes back in and literally writes on a photocopy of the uh, um, the pages where they expect what they expect the writing the um the word bubbles and the thought bubbles and the action uh bubbles to ex- to contain um so yeah it's uh, it's a fascinating it's a fascinating process mm. and uh was there kind of almost like a a sense of responsibility when you were doing it thinking i'm part of hellraiser already yeah, sorry, coming, <laughs> coming back to your original question um <laughs> yes i think Yes, there's a sense of responsibility. Yes, always. I mean, I've worked a lot with Clive, Clive's work, both Hellraiser and Nightbreed, because I wrote Nightbreed comics as well, and I've written short stories, as you say, based on Hellraiser, because I love, I love the work. I love, you know, I, he's one of my dearest friends, and I just love, you know, the imagination and the breadth of the imagination, what... It opens up. And of course, for all of us, if you're working with an existing uh, property like Hellraiser, there are certain rules, there are guidelines. There, there, But within that, as an artist, you have to... It becomes strongest when you actually follow your own path. And you, within the framework that is given to you, you manage to speak your own voice. Thinking particularly of one of the Hellraiser comics, uh, we were given a brief to write four comics, which would be, when I say we, four writers were given four episodes each of a 16-episode interlinking stories, which Dan had written the, the kind of the through story, and saying, okay, you've now got four, uh, I think it was four, uh, episodes each and one of them I remember I wrote a line about standing in crazy balance uh, and the, the 
that human beings crave certainty. We are really bad at change. We do not, we, we, as people, we are very bad at this kind of thing. Um, we're better at it when we're younger. The older that we get, the more set in our ways we tend to get, generally speaking, huge generalizations. Um, and I wrote, wrote this line um, about standing in crazy balance when you look at life, and that's a, and which is a quote from Mervyn Peake, the guy who wrote, wrote Gormenghast. His line was, we stand in crazy balance at the edge of time. And I just like the phrase crazy balance. And a fan letter not to Marvel, but in a completely different um, comic called Cerebus the Aardvark, quoted this comic, quoted this particular thing and saying... This is how I feel every time I, um, I tie on my gun as a black policeman in Los Angeles. Uh, and this was just a few years after the Rodney King riots. And it was that thing of like, I thought, okay, when I wrote that, I was being as true to myself as I could be within the framework as Hellraiser. And I think because of that, that connects with another human being and describes their experience so i think yes you the the best way to honor the work of clive is to actually work within the framework but actually speak your own voice i've uh, seen that you've worked with clive is clive since with uh, nightbreed which you mentioned a few times mm-hmm. a very underrated movie i've only ever seen the cabal cut which i watched at fright fest actually oh right um, oh right yeah, yeah, so I've ne- I've, I've never seen the the, the much the, the, the butchered version of it. I never watched. Yeah, um, but, the theatrical. Yes, it, it seems to have really found its audience in the last decade or so. It comes up in conversations all the time now. You've also got some very very good makeup. Yes, uh, by Neil Gorton in that particular case. Neil, who went on to do the makeup for the uh, rebooting of Doctor Who. Uh, starting with Christopher Eccleston. So Neil's company uh, was uh, responsible for that. Yeah, again, incredibly lucky that Clive decided to cast me again uh, in, in, the, in, the, in that film. Um, sorry, what was the question? What was the tenor of the question again? Oh, it was just about your experiences of working with Clive again, making this movie. Uh, how, how, how you reflect on that film? I... I I love it, like yourself. I, 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 um, funnily enough, I was talking about it a lot yesterday in, a, in another interview, and it was like, I think what I love about Nightbreed is the joy in the monstrous, the celebration of monstrosity. Just before lockdown, I did a one-man show called I Am Monsters, which is all about working on Hellraiser, and you know, the chatterer and the experience of you know the full details of the operation that led to that fed into the um, design of the chatterer, and what you know working on Nightbreed and what that was like, and working on basically working on Hellbound when <laughs> Margaret Thatcher's government made it very difficult for gay people. You know this was on top of AIDS. Um, so, you know, typical Tory reaction to a, a health crisis, do something ridiculous. And it was, you know, so I think Hell, sorry, Nightbreed was a real answer, you know, by Clive to saying, yes, we're different, but there's something to celebrate here. 
um, a line I've used, and I'm going to keep on using it because I like it so much. It's like, when we celebrate difference and do not fear it, we create peace. I think that is what my view of Nightbreed is, that it's, as I say, it's the joy of the monstrous. It's the, the jo- this, a celebration of difference and all that that brings, you know. And when I say difference, I mean, and it sounds slightly weird, but when I talk about, I mean, refugees who've come to this country over the years and the different cultures who've come for whatever reason, whether it be the Windrush generation or whatever it is, you know, they bring so much to our country uh, in terms of our culture and our, our food now, you know, just extraordinary things and our art and our music and so on. We have got to learn as humanity to understand, to celebrate one another. This is what, you know, this is the thing that is going to save us. This is the thing that is going to help us deal with the, the <laughs> shit show that we've made of the planet. Um, and I think this is what, the, so this is t- to me why Nightbreed is so important to me. And as you say, I'm really pleased that we've had these different versions of Nightbreed now. Uh, and in the director's cut, if you ever got a chance to see the director's cut, which I think was on Netflix at one stage, it, you know, this, that is much closer through the work of Russell Cherrington, who put together the, and, and everybody else in Occupy Midian and so on, who that long tale of actually bringing us these things. Um, I am so pleased that Nightbreed exists um, and that the monsters really are the good guys because, of course, in my mind, they always were. You know, in Frankenstein, I'm thinking of the Universal films, apart from Dracula, perhaps, but... Um, even then he's a kind of sympathetic, you know, he is cursed to do what it is. He's, he's kind of looking for love um, in such a bad way. He looks for love in such <laughs> a bad way. Um, but, you know, when you think of the Frankenstein creature, you think of Larry Talbot, the Wolfman, and, universe, you know, the, the Wolfman can, uh, can only be killed by a silver bullet fired by somebody who loves him. You know, that's the real twist in the Universal Wolfman, which I, I I love American Werewolf in London. Do not get me wrong. I think John Landis created a wonderful movie, but I really do feel he chickened out when it was the police that shot him rather than Jenny Agatha. Because mm. I think it would have been a far more powerful moment if Jenny Agatha had had it. Had to actually face that moral dilemma. You've now spoiled the film for me. Sorry, sorry. I completely. Yes, no, 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 not spoils things. I completely agree with you. Yeah, I never thought of that before. Yeah, uh, there we go. Sorry about that. (laughs) (laughs) Next, next, my visit to slaughtered lamb. I'm going to be thinking, ah, Nicholas, Nicholas, he's right on. (laughs) (laughs) Just if I can add to that as well, I suppose in the Hellraiser context, with what you're saying about these, um, like Frank. Einstein and Dracula, they're having this uh, desire, this draw for something to make themselves complete. It's what I love about the sort of the Hellraiser film, that the driving force of the story is Frank Cotton and Julia, Mm. who are both themselves lacking something. Like Frank, I have to say, he never really gets what he wants, whatever that is. Julia's wanting him back. And do you see what I mean? There's that... 
it, it, it's interesting. It, it, it depends how you t- interpret, uh, and spoilers, the end of Hellraiser when uh, Frank Cotton, you know, is strung up and goes, Jesus. Really? Mm. <laughs> 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 seen- you can't help feeling, you know, this is his ultimate. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know, this is it's like okay, now it makes sense. This is this mm-hmm. is, these are the extremes that I'm actually wanting. You know, and uh, you know these these people driven by their passions. Um, can, yeah. can I say very quickly? There's a moment that I like in that scene where uh, it's Andrew Robinson, and he's realised he's been tricked. You, the Cenobites, have mm-hmm. got him, and he's pulled out his flick knife. Wait, I might be getting that wrong. There's a sequence in that where it looks like Andrew Robinson, obviously Frank wants to leave. He doesn't want the centre-wise back, but Chatterer, you put your hand out, you put your hand on his chest and push him back into the room. And (laughs) I know you chatter, you don't speak, but like if that motion had words, it would be, where do you think you're going? (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much. (laughs) And I'll let you into the secret. I was... I was really worried by that moment because when I, when we did it, it was like it's known technically it's known as a dabbing movement, and it doesn't it deliberately doesn't lack power. It deliberately lacks power. It's not a shove. Well, because this was because I couldn't physically do that if you look at him if you look if you watch the film very closely you'll see that chatterer isn't looking at him directly he's kind of doing that and i think that helps sells it what do you think you're doing well the reason that's happened is that's the eye i could almost see out of so to be able to actually hit him with that i needed to have my head slightly like that that's brilliant and it's like and as you say it wasn't until i'd seen the film I watched Hellraiser when it first came out. I went with my parents to see it when it first came out. <laughs> it was not a weird experience. <laughs> it was my mum's reaction, which I thought was the best of all, because she laughed at quite a bit of it. And I thought, oh, actually, you're getting jokes here. I'd not, because Clive has got a really wicked sense of humour. It's like, mm-hmm. you're not taking this too seriously. You're enjoying it. You're not taking it. And at the end of it, I said, so, well, mum, what did you think? She said, it's very silly, dear. Uh, <laughs> 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 I thought, yeah, I have told Clive that. He does know that story. He's met my mum. <laughs> you loved my mum. But, yeah, no, thank you. I'm so pleased. But, again, it's that I watched that film and all I could see is the... the um, I think, oh, I should have done that differently. I could, oh, I remember that's what would happen on that day. You know, that's that set, that isn't really the house. I could, you know, and you look at it from a very technical perspective and your immediate visceral memory, because it was only six, six to eight months since we'd actually filmed it when I got to see it. It would probably be 10 years before I just sat down and thought, oh, hell, this is a really good movie. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm now no longer watching it from my experience, but just watching it as a member of the audience and then watching it as a filmmaker myself in terms of... I've made some short films. Um, and it, you look at it with a director's eye. You look at it... I mean, there's a what the f- fabulous moment in when Julia has brought back the first victim 
And if you look at that, just what that one shot, I think that shows the genius of Robin Vigen, who's the lighting cameraman, and Clive, because Julia is literally standing uh, either side of a stained glass window and she's hesitating between light and darkness. She's literally standing on a threshold between, the, and I just think that is wonderful. That to me it, it, it is absolutely amazing. I've gone she, off on she, one of my usual things. She's my absolute <laughs> favourite character in it. It's, uh, oh, Julia, yeah, Claire yeah, Higgins. She, Isn't yeah. she great? It's like, yeah, aside from just being an absolute style icon, you know, she uh, she <laughs> sells the fear of it so well. And um, and just the dark romance aspect, it's, it's, it's so good. And, you know, this was her first, I mean... This is a lady who's done Royal Shakespeare. She's done. She's a wonderful, yeah. wonderful actress and a wonderful human being as well. Because I mean, um, Claire Higgins really stood. You know, always said it's not right that only middle class children with rich parents can afford to go to drama schools. We are missing out on a whole generation of people from working class backgrounds who can actually afford to go to dance, to you know, who can afford to do arts courses. Uh, and she, I know she was working toward that, but I, I love that performance because she really, literally goes from the girl with the slightly country country accent um, to this woman who's taking a claw hammer to somebody's head. <laughs> a wonderful performance. In the podcast I did with David, sort of mentioned that this one of the things I love about this film, it, it avoids becoming a slasher at every opportunity. Yes. And it could have been a knife, but they went with a hammer. <laughs> uh, what, I would, what I'd love to share with you in this, actually, a little something that I personally feel about the Hellraiser films and something about the first Hellraiser that differentiates it from... Uh, the subsequent uh, sequels, and that, for instance, when you're watching like The Incredible Hulk, for the, for the movie, you're you're waiting for Bruce Banner to turn into the Hulk, and there's a, like, the the human bits in between. You think these are the boring bits. Finally, he's hulked out. And with a lot of the sequels in Hellraiser, there's a lot of sort of sitting around waiting for the Cenobites to show up. Mm -hmm. And what's brilliant about Hellraiser 1 is that the story just with the regular living humans is so engaging that I love the whole story and then it's oh extra treat the Cenobites are here as well and that's one of the things I love about it that's beautifully put Alistair I think I completely and utterly agree is the fact that yeah if you took the Cenobites out there's a Love track. Yeah, yeah, there there's is. There's a love track. It's just that one of them happens to be dead. He didn't let that slow him down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's the only one that you could almost do on stage, I reckon. It had to be a pretty, yeah. pretty oh, big budget yeah. production. I, oh, <laughs> yeah. No, I, I would love to see a stage. But we talked, I mean, over the years, we've fantasized about the idea of um, a uh, an opera. Hellraiser the Opera. Oh, I would love that. I, I'm, I'm not a fan of, a huge fan of opera. I like light opera. I like things like Deflator Mouse and Cavaliera, uh, uh, Cavan Pag, Cavaliera Rusticana and Dino Pagliacci. Um, those, uh, and, and Gilbert and Sullivan. I'm a huge fan of Gilbert and Sullivan. But I would love to see a proper opera done of Hellraiser because I think the passions are big enough. I mean, the opera is about big passions and these big sets. And I remember talking with Doug Bradley um, about this and either he was he was talking about there had been discussions at one stage about there being some sort of stage version of it where basically 
you start with the lament configuration, the puzzle box, this huge thing on stage, and it slowly opens up to reveal the house where where all the action takes place. And I, just, I love that image. I love that idea. But I'd love that. I can, yeah. I mean, I, I, somebody write an opera. <laughs> or a, you know, a really good. You can you can do it with Sweeney Todd, Stephen Sondheim. Here's a challenge to you. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, the thing is, now that, now that Clive Barker's got the rights back, you know, I mean that that's something that really enthused me to use his word because you know we see with some of the sequels where all right, there's one every seven years because they have to make one to yeah. the rights. Yeah, and there's just something about knowing the original creators got it again that whatever that, that yeah. he he cares about it that he's back. Yeah. With it. Yes, and I think you know, and I, I, I think he's kind of a, from memory had a love hate relationship, and I think the hate relationship was the fact that it had been ripped out of it. Well, not ripped because he had, you know, he made the decision. Um, but what people did with his mm-hmm. his creation and his well, and I think you know, this is why I like one of the the, the Hellraiser comics. Um, if we go back to those for a moment, if you can manage to get the first edition of um, the uh, the first issue of the Hellraiser comic that was done by Epic back in the early 90s, um, there is a short story, because they're all like 10, 15, 10 page comics, they're all short comic, short stories. Um, and there's one in there called Simply Thesis, and I'm trying to remember the artist's name uh, can, people can google it but basically it's called simply fetus and there are no cenobites but in my mind it's a hellraiser story it's there's it's actually a story told without words uh, which i think makes it even more powerful it is literally just panel after panel image after image um which allows you as a reader to really invest in it um and and so on so I think, yeah, the there is so much that can be done with Hellraiser in terms. So I'm really hoping there are going to be some really good. You know, they've just finished filming the um, the reboot, and I'm so excited for that. I can't yeah, wait to see. That. I really cannot wait to see that. I'm, I Origin. I love the idea that it. You know, they've gone back much closer to the original book where the. Uh, the leader of the Cenobites is described as a female and and, mm-hmm. and Pinhead is described as having a high female voice. And yeah. I think, you know, this is, it's like all good, we were, we, at the beginning we were talking about the fact that it has lasted over decades. And I was trying to express the idea, it deals with principles of being a human being our, our desires, our passions, our wants, our needs, uh, in both sexual, you know, in terms of companionship, but sexual fulfillment, however, and taking it to extremes and sensation and um, and so on. So I think there is such a rich seam of interest. Oh, Books of Blood. Hulu did Books of Blood recently. I, oh, I yes. Um, it's on Disney Plus in the UK. I was like, oh, well, I actually <laughs> get to see this. this. And I think they did an incredibly good job of it. Um, and I I thought that was really, really good work uh, and, and absolutely fascinating. And I love it when you take an author's work and do something very exciting uh, with it. 
has uh, firstly, by the way, we've actually gone like three times as long as I was Sorry. planning. Yeah. No, no, no. I no, honestly, thank you so much. This is this this is this is going to be the uh, introduction for Inferno and uh, well, Bloodline Inferno. This will just be its own episode now. Um, <laughs> and uh, and honestly, it's been it's been great fun. Uh, if I may, I've got two oh, quick questions left. Sure. So. In the in the la- in the last wee while, I know that you've directed some of your own films. I know you appeared in Book of Monsters, which was mm. awesome, and uh, I've seen you in some shorts. There's a really good short you were in, which I've, I've embarrassed to say I've completely forgotten the name of it. You were sat down, you were sat down the chair for most of it, saying that it was like a kid that's coming in and, and mindless. breaking. Casey Bonham's mindless. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah, you're very much still a horror guy, but what sort of horror really appeals to you? What sort of horror makes you go, I want to get involved, whether it's you creating that horror or being a part of the horror? I've always used the term intelligent horror, which is why speaking about mindless, it's not about jump scares. Jump scares are an important part of horror, don't get me wrong. And if Well, let, let's go back to Hellraiser. Let's go back to the entrance of the Chatterer in Hellraiser. You know, this is masterful. You know, by the time you get to see the the um, Cenobites, and not just Chatterer, because Chatterer is like <laughs> Chatterer is like John the Baptist. I really don't mean to offend Christians when I say it like that. He, is, <laughs> um, he, you know, Chatterer is the guy, is the first one there. He's the he is the uh, person who leads the way and introduces the rest of the gang as they come in. You know, by the time you get to see Pinhead and the female Cenobite and Butterball and so on, you've had all this stuff going on. You know, you've had Kirsty physically. You've had that tension built up. I mean, you know, it's a masterclass in, build, in building tension. I look for moments like that. What I particularly liked about Katie Bonham's Mindless is because, apart from anything, you know, it was a, a really beautifully written part. You know, it's the fact that he has very few words, and it's, but also, um, uh, Kate Danbury, who's in it with me as well, playing the carer. She had actually been a carer. Um, and knew what this was like. And uh, Katie and I, Katie went on to um, produce the London Horror Festival. The uh, I must give a shout out to her for the London Horror Festival, London's largest and oldest perform- festival of oh, you're, live you're a pa- horror a patron performance. For that, I believe. Say again? Yeah, you're you're in the you're a patron for that. I was I am the patron of it, yes. And a huge kudos for Katie to running it for about the last six five or six years uh, by herself. And again, that's you know just I am a real horror guy. What excites me? It's well, horror theatre. I find incredibly exciting. I you know because none of that be, it being up on screen, you know, you can be that you can be two or three feet away from the action. Um, you can get involved in the action because the performer on stage looks at you and says, okay, it's, you know, now. Um, I've always been attracted to horror because of it really is love, sex and death. Um, <laughs> love, sex, death and starshine as Clive has it in one of the <laughs> short stories in the in the books of blood and probably miss i know it ends starshine uh love death and starshine those are the fundamental things that we deal with as human beings you know basically chiclet is for daytime horror 
is for nighttime. Yeah. You know, we're, we're, we're dealing with the stuff that happens in the dark, whether that dark be the dark of the night or the dark of the human soul. And I think when you just think, oh, light good, dark bad, that isn't the only story. Dark can be very, very bad, but so can the light. And, you know, and things, you have to understand the balance and the interplay between these things and those forces. So... What attracts me to my, my, my I said it many times before. My favorite horror film is *The Mask of the Red Death*, directed by mm. Roger Corman, starring Vincent Price, based on two short stories by Edgar Allan Poe, which is basically a meditation on a pandemic and how do you deal with that? And if God is so good, where's God? Therefore, this world must be subject to satan therefore it makes far more sense to pray to satan rather than it does to the christian god um it's those are the things that you know i like the big questions and that speaks the human condition and uh, so you're a drama school guy yourself i Mm. believe when you're doing stuff at drama uh, a drama school is for would have been like a bit of a snobbery towards genre things or like, like, were you always? Did you always feel quite empowered to to go down a horror route? Or was maybe part of you that's like, but it's not, it's not Greek theatre. It kind of is Greek theatre. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was, a, that, that was a terrible example. <laughs> yeah, no. I think I don't. I listen. When I I was making a movie, hell, I was making a movie. That was the only snobbery. Was you know the uh, when you left drama school, the idea was that you went off and I've heard Orlando Bloom talk about this. You know, what you did was you did repertory and luck. If, if you were lucky, you then got to do TV and then you got mm-hmm. to do films. I kind of went straight into films. Simon Bamford and I more or less went. Well, no, Simon did. Um, uh, theatre, and I had done some theatre. Simon Bamford did theatre with Clive Barker. Um, the So that's kind of where the snobbery went. Mm-hmm. The fact that it was a horror film. I loved horror, you know, I, I'd been reading horror stories since I was a kid. I'd been making models, Aurora models of um, Frankenstein and um, uh, Phantom of the Opera and The Wolfman. Um uh, I sorry, Dracula rather than Frankenstein. So I wasn't conscious of such a thing because hell, it was a, it was paid work and it was a film. Whatever happened, softcore horror seems to go through kind of uh, peaks and troughs within the public consciousness. I remember I was speaking to uh, Neil Marshall a while back, and he was talking about how when they were funding the Descent, they had to describe it as a psychological thriller <laughs> to the distributor. I was like, well, what? yes. This is this is why Clive had to get money from America to make Hellraiser. It was filmed over here, but all the money was American because uh, in the UK they all wanted to make A Room with a View. So yes, I, in that aspect, yes, there was snobbery. I obviously wasn't aware of that because I had nothing to do with getting the money together. But I learned recently, you know, that, that this was why it was New World Productions. Uh, which, funnily enough, was originally owned by Roger, Co- created by Roger Corman. So yes, there was that kind of snobbery in that. So the snobbery was in terms of the money, mm. uh, as a put rather than the artistic stuff. As uh, one very last question, I was going to ask about your current, your 
will we'll hopefully again be a, t- a two-ring show of I Am Monsters. So I believe at the moment you've, you you were doing an American leg, is that right? Yeah, so basically the idea was that I would do it, do the one-man show, and then when I did conventions in the, in the States, um, I would do that. Rather than doing a Q&A, I would do the show. Um, so whenever I was invited. So that hopefully is what will happen when I get to go back into the States again. Um, that's kind of what I'm, I'm hoping will happen. Fingers and everything else crossed. I absolutely. And uh, how's that been for you yeah. so far? Because it sounds like a very personal show. You talk, you know, you're you're going up for talking about uh, mm. years when you were younger, um, mm. like being gay at a time when there was greater mm. greater social stigma, and also about the idea of monsters not really fitting in. So I guess wondering, like, how's it been? Sort of like I, I assume the audience reaction firstly has been very positive, but from yourself, what's it been like becoming the star of the show there? Oh, who doesn't want to be the star of the show? You're talking to an actor. <laughs> How sweet and naive a question is that? Uh, <laughs> it. I mean, it, it's, really, it's really weird. I mean, it was terrifying because, and you know, you look at the script and you think, no one really wants to listen to that. <laughs> Why on earth do they want to hear that story? Are they really interested in that? Um... It's. I've been re, I've been revisiting the material just recently, actually, in the hopes of doing something else with it, um, which I can't talk about. But I can say yes. I've been looking at the material again and looking at expanding it, and it's difficult. It is actually difficult. You know, there are moments in the show, that are moments in my life which are bloody painful, and I don't mean physical pain. Uh, very difficult. Um, what I was particularly pleased about is because obviously this is my story, but this is also the story of my friendship and inspiration by Clive Barker. Uh, the, the, just before we did lockdown, I was able to do the show in uh, Las Vegas with Clive in the audience. Um, I mean, I'd been working, I'd been consulting with Clive throughout the writing of it. I was thinking, is that, can I do this? Can I is this okay you know have i remembered this correctly uh again as i say he was just being extraordinarily encouraging and so yeah it at times it's very it's like it's what i was talking about earlier on and this is the true of any artist you particularly with horror you tend to write from a place of pain that's kind of what the gig is if you're dealing with horror you are that's not to say uh, you know even comedy, actually, if it's really good comedy, has a part of it must come from a place of pain, because otherwise, what's the, because that's actually what we're all trying to deal with, and I think what all great art celebrates joys. Don't you know? I I tend to watch an awful lot of comedy stuff. I love light things. I I don't con- if I had a con- if I had nothing but a diet of horror, I think that would be seriously damaging to my mental health. So, but you know, so when I writing my stuff, then yes, it's it can be quite challenging at times. So it was challenging. It was fun. I had wonderful, wonderful reactions to it. Um, I including somebody we ran a competition to get a to come and see the show for free and the gentleman who ran it admitted that it was the first time he'd been out of the house in nearly a year 
because of, of his agoraphobia. And he was so happy and he was so excited and he was so pleased to meet. So that was really very, very moving. So, yeah, it's, it's wonderful. I would love to show it again. I love doing it live to audiences again. So I really am hoping that it's going to be... Obviously, what I'd originally hoped was that I would be able to take it on tour through the UK. That was what I was hoping to do, was to just take mm. it to smaller theatres and uh, particularly the theatre where I grew up in Horsham. Um, they've got a little studio theatre in their Capital Arts Centre uh, or the Capital there i'd really love to do the show there so hopefully cross fingers it will be you know it'll be the return of i am monsters <laughs> if it's ever up near uh, northeast scotland we will both be in the front row absolutely <laughs> yeah. promise uh, nicholas thank <clears throat> thank you so much for coming and speaking to us today been an absolute pleasure thank you and uh, just uh, before we go, I'd like to add, um, actually earlier on when you were talking about um, is there any God in this world or is there's mm. also Satan operating in this world, you reminded me of one of my favourite quotes. I can't remember who it was from. It's been, it's been in my head, so I can't pay attribution, but it runs along the lines of there's, some, there's someone lying on their deathbed and the priest has come round and has said, do you renounce Satan? And the person lying on the bed goes, now is not, not the time to be making new enemies. <laughs> I've always quite liked that quote. It is a famous last word, isn't it? I, I, I think I can't remember who on earth it's. It's not Balzac. I, yeah, I, I've been I, trying it, to. It's attributed to somebody as being their last words. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and I suppose I would like to share with you, I suppose, my uh, thoughts on just the original four Cenobites. That when you standing in a row, that uh, iconic look. And I know that uh, they didn't all transfer all through the sequels. And I, I find a double-edged sword in the one sense where you get new directors, new creators, and they want to express themselves and they create new Cenobites throughout the series. On the one hand, I, I like that, but there's also something quite special about the original four Cenobites. Well, thank you. Thank you very much indeed. It's a bit in part three where uh, Pinhead says they're what a shadow of my former troops, and I was like, "Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> forgotten that." <laughs> yeah, uh, thank you very much, Nicholas. It's been an absolute pleasure. Well, thank you very much indeed for having me.